0: Well, welcome again. It's great to have you here. Um, I know that there's uh, quite a few people who have uh, returned from various travels this week. Uh, and so before I kind of get stuck into the text today, I want to do a little bit of a review from last week, just in case you weren't able to join us online or you weren't able to uh, kind of podcast it. Um, last week, uh, we started our series on the Gospel of Mark. And we asked this question, what does it mean to write a gospel? <laughs> like, What was the work of a gospel and uh, and front and center um, of uh, this uh, gospel writing was uh, the definition of this gospel writing is actually found uh, here in verse one of mark chapter one it says in the beginning of the oh, sorry the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet and we noted last week that this word the, the beginning of the good news was this word "euangelion," it's this word gospel, and this was a subversive uh, piece of literature that was written, uh, that was kind of politically loaded, and would kind of undercut and subvert the powers of Greece, of Rome, of these kind of forces that would be oppressing uh, the people of the day. And central to any gospel, but particularly Mark's gospel, and then Matthew and Luke's gospel, was this kind of key message: there is a new king and a new kingdom. This is how a euangelion was used with the Greeks and the Romans. There is a new king or a new leader and a new kingdom, whether it be Greece or Pax Romana with Romans. And the gospel writers were saying, no, no, no. Actually, there is a new king and a new kingdom, and his name is Jesus. Right? And so this is what a gospel was. It was a subversive and dangerous work. And that's what we're going to kind of build on today. We're going to go through more than just one verse today for those who were here last week. We're going to be working through the framing up of this gospel, particularly as we are introduced to various characters as part of this new king and new kingdom story. And so it continues, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so Mark, as he writes this gospel, he specifically references a couple of Old Testament books where he's basically saying God always knew that there was going to be someone coming and then there was going to be someone to prepare this particular coming. And as we discover over the course of this sermon, both of these quite key characters in this gospel are going to be very public, very dramatic, a little bit wild in some ways. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you know that to uh, say something or to wear something, it's going to be a little bit wild. People aren't going to respond the classic way that they would usually respond to you. I I had one of these uh, kind of moments, um, and I want to show it to you, this is, a, this is a shirt that, that I acquired over time that lives very dangerously in my cupboard. Now, I deliberately chose not to wear it today because I knew you would not listen to a word I had to say if I actually wore it. Now, this was, this is, I mean, don't get me wrong, like I'm looking, you're going, that's a good looking shirt, Right. But, that, but that, is, that is a particularly wild shirt. I remember when I first tried to wear this shirt, I had to actually wear a jacket over the top so that only about a third was visible just to stop people from kind of passing out at the side of it. And, and then you also would get these kind of different responses to doing something a little bit wild, a little bit public, a little bit out there. You know, someone might give you some critique. They might say, oh, is that what they use the rest of the tablecloth for? Hush, ah, hush! But, but I mean, but at the end of the day, when I put it out there, I was expecting a different kind of response. I couldn't deny it; it was going to be a bit, a, a bit bold, you know. But sometimes we have something to say, or something to do, or even something to wear, and we know it's a risk to kind of put it out there. People aren't going to respond the way that they usually do, and, and this is a challenge for us when it comes to our faith, because sometimes we can be quite subtle about our faith. And don't get me wrong, there's times in the Bible where it talks about the subtlety of faith and, and, and being, being uh, submissive to the authorities and just being faithful. Like, you know, there are times and places for a, a kind of faith that is, that is subtle. But sometimes we can get a little too comfortable there rather than kind of putting our faith on display in a healthy but dynamic way. And that's what we're going to be challenged with with these couple of characters today. So who is this voice that is quite dramatic and quite public? We read on. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Oh, sorry, that's actually in the other translation. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you look in the Lucan passage, it also says and with fire. Been doing lots of work on this passage. (laughs) Now, we got this character John the Baptist. Now I know I could have gone dramatic and dressed up as him, but I just don't know how you feel about me eating like, you know, locusts up here. That might be a bit of a turn off, but you cannot deny that this guy was a dramatic figure. But This wasn't just John the Baptist, by the way. It wasn't like, hey, you know, John's sitting down there going, okay, I'm trying to kind of posit an identity. Oh, who should I be? Who should John the Baptist be? It would be pretty wild if I wore camel hair, wouldn't it? Oh, maybe I could wear a funny hat. No, I won't do that. Instead, I'll eat locusts. This wasn't something that John sat down and kind of brainstormed an identity and a profile about. John the Baptist was doing something very, very deliberate in the things he wore and the place that he ministered. You see, John the Baptist was imitating someone. He was deeply imitating someone who had come long before him. And that person was the prophet Elijah. So if we turn back to the book of, for example, Two Kings, we see a lot of stories about the prophet Elijah. And what's interesting, when you look at John the Baptist, and and maybe if you've only kind of treated him independently, you suddenly realize, wait a second, John the Baptist is just doing an Elijah. If we look here in uh, in in uh, two Kings chapter one verse eight, when Elijah was being described, it said they replied he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist, and the king said that was Elijah the Tishbite. And where did Elijah minister and where did he hang out in the wilderness? This is who John the Baptist was imitating, this fiery prophet who was calling the people who had gone the wrong way back to their God, Yahweh. And so you had this incredible character, John the Baptist, wearing his Elijah costume, rough, fiery. Like, for the people who saw John the Baptist, they knew exactly what he was doing. They were saying, he is Elijah. Not the actual Elijah, but he is embodying the Elijah. Now, what was wild about this is John the Baptist was the son of a priest, right? He was the son of a priest, of Zechariah the priest. We actually have stories about Zechariah in in John's kind of birth narrative. So how must it feel, right, to be the son of a priest who was supposed to work in the temple, to then actually his expression to be this wild Elijah-like figure in the desert, Critiquing the religious authorities of the day. I want us to note here in Malachi chapter uh, 3, verses 1 to 4. These are the words that came um, from that first passage in Mark chapter 1, one of those references. In Malachi 3, it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap, right? He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, that is the priesthood, right? And refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by these former years. So this John the Baptist character didn't just pop out of nowhere. He was the one who was predicted. And not only this, he was the son of a priest, and his role was to purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Like that's, that's a tricky relationship. Like, and Zechariah, the priest, you know, he was known as a righteous man. But it must have been a little awkward talking about what his son was up to with the other priests, Right? And what his role might have been that was predicted back in Malachi, right? A little awkward, right? So John the Baptist was this incredible, provocative, fiery person. So let's have a look at what he was doing. Like First of all, he had a message. And his message was quite simple. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is significant, especially this reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, um, uh, many of us may or may not be aware, actually, now that I think of it, the era that preceded this, the era that preceded this for hundreds of years was known as a time of silence of the Holy Spirit, right? Right? So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, it was not actually an uncommon idea. It was a Ruach HaKodesh, right? And the Holy Spirit was given to specific people in specific times and specific circumstances. Through your judges and through your prophets, they were known as the people who the Holy Spirit worked through. But for a very long time, the Holy Spirit had been silent, right? And you've got to be wondering, these people who are under persecution where God is suddenly silent, like, what is going on? And then John the Baptist comes up and he says, hey, hey! actually, someone's coming. I'm going to baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Like that is a revolutionary message for people, everyday people. Not just special prophets, not just special Levites and priests, but everyday people. This one is going to come and he's going to baptize you in a profound way. Remembering that first and foremost, this public faith of John was challenging the religious leaders of the day. And I wanna I want to just point this out, right? Because as I kind of roll around this idea and as I challenge you to to maybe live your faith a little bit more publicly, right? And kind of put yourself out there, the temptation sometimes is to be like, yeah, I'll tell the world what's what. I'll take my faith seriously and I'll put those challenging words out there on Facebook, right? And maybe there is a time and a place with discernment. Maybe. Unlikely. But what we see in John the Baptist is he challenges the religious people of the day. He's saying, you guys are living for, supposedly living for God, but you're actually not living the way that he intended you to live. And so someone is coming, and he's going to turn this whole thing around. Again, what is the gospel? A new king and a new kingdom. That was John's message, a new king and a new kingdom. So he didn't just have a message, he also, to refer to it as the good news, he also had a practice. and says, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And again, it describes him. Now, I don't know about you, when we get to these baptisms, sometimes if we've read a lot in the Bible about baptism, it can get a little bit confusing. And that's understandable, right? And the reason is because Christians don't have exclusive access to the practice of dipping things in water. (laughs) It may surprise you. Christians do not have exclusive access to the process of dipping something in water. And that is why it gets a little bit confusing in the Bible when you see these various baptisms occurring. Okay? So what I want to do is I just want to quickly give a little bit of context so we can understand what Jesus is actually stepping into. Now, this is going to be an exciting chart for people who love charts. This is really important to understand. In the first century, right, in the time of Jesus, there were four significant expressions of first century Judaism. That is the religious people, right? Four significant expressions. Now, the ones that we are familiar with mostly, right, uh, you might see up there. Now, there were kind of two dynamics of these four groups. Some of them were part of the priestly line, right? So they were descendants of Zadok the priest, right? And so they served in the temple. And then there were people who weren't priests, and that's totally fine too. Then there was a different dynamic. There were some people who embraced Hellenism, and I talked about that last week. That is Western thinking, that is Greek and Roman thinking, which had its kind of central idea around humans rather than God, and they would bring comforts through education and healthcare and entertainment and, and, and competition, right? And so you had four groups responding to these two dynamics. So first of all, I'm actually going to start down with the ones that we're a bit more familiar with. The, the ones who were part of the priestly line but embraced Hellenism. They were like, yeah, yeah, we can, we can co-opt this kind of comfortable, kind of, kind of humanistic type thinking. They were the Sadducees. They were the priests who worked in the temple, but they, essentially they'd sold out, right? They'd sold out to this form of Hellenism. And that were the Sadducees. Now, the other people who weren't part of the priestly line but had done the same thing were called Herodians. Right? And these were people who were like, yeah, I can take the, the comforts of Rome and I can live according to them, but I can still have my faith. Right? right, And they were known as Hellenistic Jews. Now, if any of this is kind of resonating with you, it's because a lot of us will identify with the Herodians nowadays. Right? It's okay. It's okay. But that's just what's going on. Then you had two other groups. You had the people who weren't part of the priestly line but rejected Hellenism. They're like, we don't want any part of that. They were known as the Hasidim or the pious ones. We don't want part, any part of that entertainment kind of culture. We want to separate ourselves out. And you had two different groups there. We had the Pharisees, which again you'd be familiar with, who separated themselves out by devotion to the text, right? And to the law. And then you had the Zealots who do, separated themselves by forming knives and seeking to kill the Romans, right? That's how they separated themselves. And then you had one more group, and they were the Essenes. And this is the group that you may not be as familiar with. The Essenes were the group of people who are part of the priestly line who said, I do not want a bar of Hellenism. I don't want to participate in what Rome is doing. I will separate myself. I will go out into the wilderness and I will write down the text over and over and over again. And if you've heard of these before, it's because the Dead Sea Scrolls that were unearthed you know, within this century right, were the writings of the Essenes. Okay, now you need all that context to understand what is going on with baptism of the day, right? Because the word, or the word that we would use in the Hebrew for baptism is this word mikvah. Now, what would happen is when the people came back out of captivity in Babylon, all these different groups, what came back with them was this form of baptism called mikvah. It is not only a physical bath, it's called a mikvah, like you can have a physical kind of bath, a baptistry, you would say, but mikvah is also the word for being baptized. And so the Pharisees, for example, had a type of mikvah. It was one that you may be familiar with. It was a ritual cleansing. I need to wash my hands before I eat. You know, some of the people took issue with that in terms of Jesus and his disciples. You know, if, if someone had gone through their menstrual period, they had to wash themselves to become clean. This was all forms of Pharisaic mikvah, right? So that's how the Pharisees would practice their baptism, right? and it would happen over and over again, and it was something that Jesus himself critiqued quite heavily, even though he would definitely have participated in it to some extent. Absolutely. After all, he was from that Pharisaic area. But there was a different type of baptism, and that was the Essene baptism. Okay? Now, the Essene baptism was a baptism of repentance. All right, Tevila teshuva. Right, So while everyone had their different types of baptism, the Essenes had this special kind of baptism that they would call a baptism of repentance. And this was a type of baptism that wasn't a ritual baptism, but it was a washing where someone would decide that they had been walking in error. They decided that they had been walking in the wrong way and so they wanted to return. That's that word, shuvah; It means to return. I want to repent. I want to return back to the way that God created me to live. And it means to turn around. You return to the way that God originally called you to walk. So traditionally, you would actually go down and immerse yourself. But an Essene baptism... An Essene baptism is a statement to the watching world that I am choosing to walk the path correctly. It's Different to the Pharisee baptism and Essene baptism. So, this is not a complex question, but which one was John doing? He was doing the Essene baptism, right? So he wasn't doing the Pharisaic baptism, he was doing the Essene baptism. And that isn't surprising because, again, he was part of the priestly line who had rejected right, what was going on with the Sadducees, So he's out there in the wilderness, hanging out with the Essenes, right? And he takes this variation, what would ultimately be a variation of an Essene baptism, and he starts calling people to uh, repentance. Now, I know I've done a bit of work here, but this is actually so important to understand before we see this next verse. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, Because if we don't have that background knowledge, this raises a whole lot of questions around what Jesus is up to. (laughs) Okay? It's like, what is going on? Because this baptism that Jesus was participating in wasn't a Christian baptism, so to speak, right? As John's ministry actually preceded Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus needed forgiveness, right? Because he hadn't committed any sins. All right? This was Jesus taking on an Essene mikveh, an Essene baptism, while all the people were observing him and making the declaration: if you watch me, I am going to walk the path correctly. That's what he's doing. He's stepping into John's baptism of repentance. He's saying, I'm going to embrace this. In fact, in one gospel it says, I must do this in order to fulfill all righteousness because it was a public declaration that I am going to walk the path correctly. So while while we ought to follow Jesus' example in stepping into the right path and are commanded to go make disciples and baptize them, The baptism that we participate and celebrate is actually one of allegiance to Jesus and a commitment to his way, which is, of course, God's way revealed. That is the distinction between what Jesus was doing and what we do today. We need to understand this. Otherwise, that verse of Jesus getting baptized is very confusing. But Jesus is putting himself out there. He didn't need forgiveness of sins, right? But what he was demonstrating to the world is, I am choosing to walk the path correctly. I mean, I remember when I got baptized, I was about 13 years old. I don't know if I was 12 or 13. And I was in this little uh, tin shed. And inside that tin shed was a corrugated tin baptistry. And inside that corrugated tin baptistry was an element that was supposed to heat the water. I still don't know how that was safe because that just doesn't strike me as electricity and water working together, but whatever they did, they pulled it out before I got in. And then they asked me two questions and they just said, Hey, have you chosen to, to follow Jesus? And I said, Yep. And are you committed to his living out his way? And I said, Yep. And they said, That's enough. Boom, right? Because that's what it is king and kingdom, right? It's allegiance to Jesus and his way. It is a simple step. It should not surprise us that the examples we have in Scripture are of people coming to place their trust in Jesus and immediately getting baptized because it is a step of public allegiance to Jesus. Now, if this is kind of messing with you a little bit, let me just help you out here in Acts chapter 19. Notice this little nuance here. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and right at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard of there as a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right. So just in case you thought I was kind of just like pulling threads here and making this up, this is in the text, right? People are still trying to work out what was John's baptism and what is this Christian baptism that Jesus is inviting his disciples to participate in. And what it highlights is that there is something about the Holy Spirit going on there, right? The Holy Spirit in the first century was breaking out in a profound way after these years of silence. And it was bringing unity and it was bringing power to Jesus' followers. So it shouldn't surprise us that we see that back in Mark chapter 1. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God liked that he took that step. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was tempted in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with so he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Now, in the other Gospels, we're going to see more detail. We're going to see Jesus, uh, John's apprehension to baptize uh, Jesus. But around Math, uh, sorry, Mark, written to a Roman worldview, right? He's not getting caught up in detail. He's just pumping it out, right? It's just crazy. I mean, check out this, you know, just as. You know, it's just like, it's just like the immediacy is crazy. But what we see here is that the Spirit the Holy Spirit, through that step of obedience and Jesus saying, I'm going to walk the path correctly, is bestowed upon Jesus in a special way. It's two things I just want to highlight here, really briefly. So first of all, this is significant because there are two voices of authority in this story. There is the voice of authority of John the Baptist and a voice from heaven. Okay. Now this is going to be important later because a rabbi, in order to have authority to teach, it's called Shmikah, needs to be affirmed by two authoritative voices in order to be publicly validated as one who can teach with authority. And so this step of baptism is going to be the voice of John the Baptist and the voice of God that is going to give him shmikah, or authority, which is going to appear in verse 22 in a couple of weeks' time. Okay? So that's one thing that's going on here. The other thing that we see here with this immediate heading into the, the wilderness to be tempted Of course, what we see is we see Jesus echoing the journey of the Israelites, right? As they came out of Egypt and as they went through the waters of the Red Sea, okay? Jesus heads into the desert, right, to be tempted. And the other word for that is tested, which is exactly what happened to the Israelites in the desert. This is a very deliberate act by Jesus. He is participating in something, a story that has been around for a really long time. It's amazing what's going on. It's amazing the demonstration that Jesus is giving. So this whole passage, this whole passage, screams of an explicit and an expressed faith. You've got John the Baptist even dressing the part, right? He's like throwing it out there. He's saying, this thing isn't subtle. I'm making a statement to the world. You've got Jesus stepping into this radical form of baptism. And you have the Holy Spirit anointing upon Jesus in this public, profound way. And so this ought to challenge us. It ought to challenge us when we may be attempted to do the subtle thing. And again, it doesn't mean that we have to kind of be bravado and be like, you know, getting up with our bullhorns and, and, and causing trouble. But it means that our faith ought to be one that is known and expressed in an explicit way. And one of the ways we can do that is by getting baptized, right? Jesus would, would take this and he would invite his disciples who make disciples to follow his lead and say, hey, you've got to meet people and they're going to have to repent and turn to follow the right way of walking, right? And so he would take this baptism thing that John kind of borrowed from the Essenes and then he would twist it and turn it into something else again. That's fine. Jesus is cool with that. We're cool with that. We've been doing that for a long time. It's about owning The faith. But maybe your challenge is, yeah, I've just got to get baptised. It's been way too long and I've expressed my allegiance to Jesus. I've been walking the path, but I've never actually publicly put it out there. But other people, maybe it is just the challenge to be a little bit more John-like. You don't need to wear camel fur. You don't need to eat locusts. But it may just be that within your workplace or within your family, you just ensure that your faith is just that bit more public, that people know you're a Christian. And where you work, do people know you're a Christian? Do they know that you follow Jesus? They should. They should. For the good reasons, right? All the best reasons. What does it like to be a bit more public, a bit more bold with your faith? Because we all have a responsibility to go public. It's what John did. It's what Jesus did. That's what we are called to as his disciples to do today. So I'm going to pray. Sorry, I know it's been a bit of a long sermon, but a fair bit to chew on. And then um, we're going to have Andy take the sip of baptism. And again, if you're sitting here and you're like, I've never been baptized, um, and I just want to publicly declare that I want to walk the path. I declare my allegiance to Jesus, or maybe I declared it decades ago. But I'm choosing to walk the path, and I want to publicly declare that. I want to create this moment as an anchor for my faith, where I take ownership of it, then you can get baptized too, right? Absolutely. So let me pray while you consider that. Jesus, you are incredible. And even as Mark kind of starts to unpack this gospel and, and we start to see your words and your works and ways over the next few weeks, I want to thank you, God, that, that you stepped in publicly to mission and ministry, You stepped into what John was doing as he prepared the way for you. And God, we pray that we would be bold. We pray, God, that we would live with uh, the kind of faith that is integrated into our world and integrated into our lives and work. Lord, um, may we not be ashamed of you. May we take great delight in living out your way. It's not always easy, and we don't always get it right, but Jesus, thank you, God, that you have shown us the way. And so, God, particularly here in Alice Springs, Lord, where we want you to receive the glory, may your people be pathways for people to see your goodness, to see your healing, to see your liberation. And so may we have the courage to wear that boldly. In Jesus' name, amen.